Hi, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's coming up on the podcast today. Do we need police reform in the province of Ontario? Why won't the police tell us what's going on in a timely manner? And that extends, does it not, to the Special Investigations Unit? Plus, a talk with my favorite elf-on-the-shelf pollster, Daryl Bricker, on why Canadians are changing their plans for the holidays. Let's get to it. As you take a look outside and you look at what that's coming down there, that's snow. You can see it. I can see it. It's snow. It's snowing out there. Now, listen, if we were to ask a police department in this country what was happening, what we would get is we would get a press release that said there is some kind of possibly frozen material, possibly falling from the sky, this from civilian intercepts, we're investigating, and we have nothing more to say at this time. We'll get back to you. And you'd say to the police, is it possible that it's snow? And they'd say, we can neither know, confirm nor deny that. Because that's what it means to be a police department and a police agency in this country and in this province. They tell you what they want to tell you when they want to you to know it. And that is how it works. Out of Brantford this morning, an incredible story. Brantford police now say that they're treating the death of a 37-year-old woman in the city's south end of Brantford as a homicide. Now you say, Alan, that doesn't seem that unusual. Seems tragic, but not that unusual. This happened in March. In March of this year. And just now, police say, yeah, you know what? We're treating this thing as a homicide. They hadn't said anything before. They hadn't even put out the name. Nothing. And to try and explain it, Brantford police say, quote, to protect the integrity of the investigation, a media release was not distributed earlier due to the manner in which police received the information. What? You didn't tell us because of the way you receive the information. The police tell us what they want, when they want us to know it. And that extends to the civilian agency that is tasked with policing the police in this province, namely the Special Investigations Unit. Here's two press releases that really caught my eye today. First, the one from Brantford that I just talked about. And now the SIU has put out a press release today saying, hey, guess what? Congratulations to us. The Special Investigations Unit now has jurisdiction over special constables employed by the Niagara Parks Commission and the peace officers with the Legislative Protective Service. In English, what that means is if you were to go to the falls and do something dumb, let's say you were just, you know, you were you drop your trousers. You just trow dropped right at the falls because you wanted to get a selfie. You'd get arrested by an officer from the Niagara Parks Commission, and if that officer with the Niagara Parks Commission uh, treated you unfairly or did something wrong or injured you in the course of your arrest before now, the Special Investigations Unit did not have jurisdiction. Same goes for the officers at Queens Park. Both of those police forces are armed. So that's good news that we have some kind of oversight of those police forces that were previously not under the jurisdiction of the SIU. But it doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't matter. 
doesn't mean you're going to get any closer to the truth if something were to happen in either of those areas. The SIU would just say, hey, we're investigating. Nobody say anything. We're checking out what that stuff is falling from the sky. I don't know. It might be. I don't know. It's some kind of frozen matter. We'll get back to you. Here's an update on the tragedy that happened in Kawartha Lakes. As you know, there was a police-involved shooting in which, in which a young child, a one-month-old boy, was shot and killed. A 33-year-old man remains in hospital. This is the latest update we have from the SIU. came three days ago. And that says that from the scene, investigators have collected three police-issued firearms and a fourth firearm, a handgun, was located in the pickup truck that was being driven by the man. Investigators are in the process of taking possession of the handgun. That's key because previous to that, we didn't really have any information about what happened. And there was an incident. That's all we know. There was an incident between police and a collision between the vehicle and the car. And police, three officers, opened fire. And this child is dead. And the SIU says it appreciates the public's interest in this case and is doing what it can to answers, get answers to the public as quickly as possible. And yet we don't have any. And if you think of some of the other big cases the SIU is looking into, we don't have any answers there either. And this brings me to what Peel Regional Council has just asked of the premier of this promise. Province. The chair of the Regional Council for Peel has said that what it wants is the premier of this province to change things so that the SIU will actually share information in a timely manner and that it will allow local police to talk about what's happened in their jurisdiction because right now you can't do that. If you are a Toronto police and something happens in Toronto and the SIU invokes its mandate, can't say anything anymore. That's absolutely, that's part of the legislation. Out. And here's another key request of Doug Ford to reform the SIU to ensure that former police officers make up no more than 50% of any SIU team. Because you know who investigates police officers? Civilians. Yes, it's a civilian agency. You know who those civilians are? They're former police officers, a large majority of them. And that is not great for optics, not great for transparency. First of all, you don't say anything. Then you got a whole bunch of former cops investigating current cops. Let me give you a great example of why the SIU was broken. This is back from February. In February of this year, a man in Toronto was arrested, 28-year-old man. He sustained multiple facial fractures and a fractured spine. The director of the SIU determined there was reasonable grounds that there was excessive use, force, excessive use of force in that arrest. But because, and here's the quote, because he's unable to attribute said force to any one or more of the officers who were there, there is no basis for proceeding with charges in the case. In other words, the blue line closed ranks, and that's that. The SIU doesn't get to know anything about it, and it takes from February until now for us, the public, to get to know about it. On the line, Ian Scott is a former SIU director. Ian, does the SIU need to be reformed? Oh, yeah. I, I, but I, I must say that uh, there are some uh, good things that have come out of this new legislation, which just came into effect today, but there's some uh, bad things as well. 
Um, I mean, I agree with you uh, with respect to extending the mandate and jurisdiction of the SIU over the Niagara Parks Commission and the legislative uh, officers down at Queen's Park. That's probably a good thing because it puts um, those uh, groups in the same category as other police officers. But there's still some big holes in that. There's some big holes in the area of um, First Nations constables who are not covered by the SIU. So that's an issue. Um, th- so, you know, there, there are some good things and bad things. Just, I believe in the new legislation, this literally came into effect today, um, there are going to be some uh, time deadlines so that there has to be reporting to the public within a certain period after an incident. It doesn't necessarily have to be the final report, but if there's not a final report, I think it's within 120 days, there has to be an update to the public about where the investigation is at. But, you know, going back to uh, information that the SIU gives to the public, um, let, let's we have to take a step back and look at two things. One is this. Um, when the SIU's mandate is invoked, it's invoked because there's typically death or serious bodily harm. Uh, there's also allegations of sexual assault, but the big ones are death and, and serious bodily harm. And there's not necessarily any criminality associated with them. That's really the essence of the investigation. So they, they're looking in, into the situation, and it requires, frankly, doing the investigation and coming up with a full report, which it now is given uh, – the full report is uh, on the public website, um, and the public can learn a lot about it. I mean, a good example was the, uh, you know, the tragic story of the young lady whose name, I believe, was Miss Regis Paquette. Regis Korczynski Paquette. Korczynski Paquette. Thank you very much, who – Call from the uh, balcony. That report took a while, but when it came out, it's fairly extensive. You can still go to the website and read it and learn all about the detail there. What do you make of what Peel Regional Council has asked for? Is that in this legislation, the the amount of former police officers on an investigative team uh, being able to release that information in a more timely fashion? Well, okay, the timely fashion that we've kind of discussed. Um, you know, in terms of how the investigative teams are made up, the, the majority of the full-time investigators at the SIU are civilian. There are a lot. Uh, the number could vary. I think it's now between 40 and 50 part-time, <clears throat> excuse me, or as-needed investigators throughout the province. The reason being, and I looked at this when I was at the SIU, the reason being that... Uh, the SIU is provincial. It has to cover the entire province. And, you know, the events are episodic. They, they happen, you know, in fact, we tracked this at one point. There's a sort of a uh, much larger number in the summertime and weekends. And it, it was the only effective way to use the taxpayers' money was to have this pool of uh, as-needed investigators. And the only pool that the SIU could attract were, uh, frankly, retired police officers because, um, they had a pension, they didn't need the money, and they had the experience in order to do these investigations and moving quickly, because there's only one site for the SIU, it's in Mississauga. But, I mean, these incidents happen all over the province, and it's, it's, a, it's particularly an issue in Northern Ontario. To get people up there and get a full investigative team can take a day or two in, in bad weather. So it's very advantageous to have this pool of... Uh, of uh, former police officers in that context. Now, there's some rules about that. They cannot investigate um, any police agency where they were previously employed. And they are going to be under the auspices of a lead investigator. And now, it's taken a long time, 
the vast majority of them have a civilian background. So, you know, there's a way to moderate all that. I mean, I was always of the view, and I continue to be of the view, that the SIU should be a, uh, a hybrid of civilian and former police officers, because frankly, we need that experience. So that's kind of the way it struck out. I mean, maybe in the long run, you know, I mean, the SIU has been around about 30 years. In another 10, 20 years, it could be completely civilianized. But it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, they're doing um, major homicides. Let's go back to, you know, the recent San team case. Um, if you don't do an indecent investigation, those investigators are going to get ripped apart in the stand. And, um, you know, the public will have an even dimmer view than some of them already have at the SIU. So it's a balance. And, um, you know, we can, we can argue about the balance, but I think the SIU is doing the best it can in terms of uh, how they staff their investigations. We'll have to leave it there. Ian Scott is a former director of the SIU. I really appreciate your perspective. Obviously, you know this space much better than I do. I appreciate you coming on. No problem at all. Take care. Well, it is interesting to note, however, that, you know, we still have these requests from civilian agencies, you know, from politicians that say we need more transparency. We need a better special investigations unit. Polls, 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 all kinds of fresh polling information to tell you about today. From Angus Reid this morning, approval numbers for Doug Ford have fallen 11 points in the last three months, now sitting at 55%. In August, Doug Ford was ranked the second most popular premier, right behind BC's John Horgan, who remains tied in first with Quebec's premier. Uh, Now, however, Doug Ford has dropped to sixth. Still got good numbers, I mean, you know, in a before-time metric, in the pre-pandemic metric, but dropping 11 points in just the past three months. I can also tell you this just coming in now, the Dofo Show, which, of course, is aired every weekday at 1 o'clock, the Doug Ford Show, the Dofo Show. Today, not featuring Dofo. No Dofo at the Dofo Show. Today, the Premier's office saying that the Premier has a medical, let me just read it here, what do we got? An unexpected but non-COVID-related non-urgent medical appointment. I don't understand that. I don't get it either. Unexpected, but non-COVID-related, non-urgent medical appointment. So, no DOFO at the DOFO show. Let's get on with more polling information. A poll from Leger says that the majority of Canadians are not worried that people in other countries might get a COVID-19 vaccine first. 37% of respondents to that survey Say they are very concerned that Canada may not receive doses of a new vaccine as early as the U.S. 48% said they're not concerned about getting it right away. 10% say they don't care, I'm getting it anyway. And a poll from Ipsos. Man, those pollsters are busy. 5 in 10 Canadians say they would either reduce their contacts or socially distant Distance, pardon me, during the holidays. That's 5 in 10 Canadians say they're going to reduce the number of people they see over the holidays. And 34% say they are canceling their holiday plans altogether. For more on this, let's get to the polling equivalent of the elf on the shelf. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos, joins me. Daryl! Are you canceling Christmas plans, Daryl? Uh, no, uh, yeah, well, actually, 
Actually, we are. Um, and uh, you know what? 88% of the population is right along with us. If they're not canceling, uh, they're adjusting them in a dramatic fashion to uh, capture what the, uh, the various health uh, officials are telling us we should be doing. So Canadians are listening. They, uh, we're going to do what we're told, at least a, a good portion of us are. Well, the vast majority of us are. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, there's always uh, something that looks, you know, exciting out there, like it's representative of some groundswell of public opinion when somebody, you know, barricades or breaks into a barbecue restaurant or there's a few couple hundred people protesting down, uh, uh, you know, in some part of the city, uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, they disagree with what's being done to, to fight the virus. But the truth is the vast majority of the population are not doing that. Okay, listen, Cindy Lou, who I don't want to get all grinchy on you here, but when oh, you're doing this totally kind of polling information, totally I'm getting I'm going to get grinchy up in here. Uh, when you're doing this polling information, you know that whole shy Trump voter thing in the U.S. I think aren't you getting here a little bit of a a shy Christmas partier who's like, what are they going to say? The pollsters, yeah, I'm getting together with fifty of my closest friends over the holidays. Uh, well, that may be the case. So we can guess at whether that is maybe another five percent. Uh, I, I don't know. The you know they're going to say the right thing because they don't want to say the wrong thing. But it's it's not going to account for the other seventy percent, whatever, that are answering the question because that's actually what they're doing. So I mean, you kind of have to balance this out. Is is there potential that people are giving us what you would call the uh, we would say in the in the business the socially desirable answer, or uh, people I think would probably say these days more politically correct answer. Uh, yeah, there's probably a little bit of that, but this is a pretty strong statement, uh, even if you take that into account, of, of people modifying their behavior this Christmas. Anything surprise you in this? I mean, I, I, I have seen and we've sort of witnessed over the last little while, you know, this, like you say, the, the barbecue dump in Etobicoke and a couple of other things that have been very high profile that give a sense that there is a, a bit of a fracture in terms of society and wanting to follow along with the recommendations. When you look at this polling, what, what does that say to you? A couple things. One of them is that really surprised me is it's not the same everywhere. So if you go to Atlantic Canada, for example, half the people, um, uh, half the level of cancellation uh, in Atlantic Canada compared to Ontario. So they really believe in their Atlantic bubble and they're doing something different. The other thing that's really surprising is you figure it would be the older people who are more you know, at threat in terms of being uh, uh, affected, uh, affected by all of this that, uh, that would be the strongest, and they absolutely are in terms of canceling plans and all the rest of it. But it's the younger people who are really surprising in this because they're the ones who are getting more infected now. They're the ones who are most likely to be saying that they're going to keep doing things uh, exactly as they were. In fact, twice as likely as, say, some, for example, somebody who's in the boomer generation. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Daryl Bricker, and perhaps we'll, uh, in 2021, be able all to gather around and you can carve the roast beast. The roast beast. Absolutely, on uh, Mount Crumpet or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, always my favorite pollster. Appreciate you being on the program. Thanks for having me on. That is Daryl Bricker, who is the uh, CEO of the Grand Poobah, if you will, of Ipsos. So the question for you when you come back, when you've heard what you just heard there, are you going to change your plants? Have you already altered your plants? Here it is, December 1st. Look, we're down to the short strokes here, folks. 
it's time to start making these decisions. I am in this boat because, you know, we have some, you know, family kind of plans that are, you know, just never been sort of set in stone. But I think maybe we're actually at a point where we're going to have to make a decision. I don't know, I'm a little tense about it. We still have a shot at Christmas. We have we don't have a shot at Christmas, JT, and you know it. If we're lucky, we got a shot at next Thanksgiving. That's what we're looking at right now. Did you get a load of that fiscal update from Ottawa yesterday? Man, oh man. Christian Freeland, the federal finance minister, predicting that the federal government is going to have to spend $267.3 billion in the current fiscal year to support individuals, businesses, and provinces, and then add in another 45, almost 46 billion in aid required in the next fiscal year. And that doesn't even get us clear of the pandemic because the Fed say they're prepared to spend between 70 billion and 100 billion over the next three years to try and pull the country out of the pandemic-induced recession. But a vast majority of that stimulus and any New permanent spending is going to be detailed at a later date. In other words, we got a lot of details about shovels of cash going out the door. We did get some details on, you know, what it's going to be spent on in the short term, but some of this big, big spending, we don't know exactly where it's going to go. Is it going to be permanent? Where is the fiscal restraint? And Abigail Beeman from Global News in Ottawa, our reporter, Abigail, can we afford this? We don't know uh, when spending will stop. We do know that the government plans to spend more, that once the virus is under control, they're promising a growth plan spending between 70 and $100 billion, or 3 to 4% of GDP. So that is, that is in the future uh, as well. Uh, and whether we can afford this, well, that's, that's a big question that uh, opposition parties will have to answer when this fiscal update is uh, put to a uh, confidence vote in the House of Commons. Right. So far, we really haven't heard a lot of, by the way, the Abigail Beeman, thank you so much. Uh, we haven't heard a lot of consternation, really, from the opposition about dollar amounts. And that's because that's politically, you know, like that's the third rail. The last thing you want to be saying right in the midst of the pandemic when people are really suffering and businesses are trying to get buys to say, you know, put your hand up and go, can we, um, maybe we shouldn't be able to, maybe we shouldn't spend all this money. Yeah, that's just politically, even though it might be the right thing in many ways to ask and to ask about means testing and is the money going to the right place and all of that sort of stuff. But it's difficult to do so because politically you open yourself up for the criticism that you want to bring in austerity at a time when people need help. So that is politically difficult, and which is why you're not hearing a whole lot of that from Ottawa right now. All right, I got a couple of things in the old grab bag that I want to get to, and I wonder if I can get to all three of them before the end of the program, I hope, because here are the three topics. We're going to talk about the Royals beards, and a giant wooden phallus. Royals, beards, and a giant wooden phallus. I don't know how I'm going to weave them all together, but somehow we're going to make these things all seamlessly work together. Have you been watching The Crown on Netflix? The new season of The Crown is out there. It's very popular. I, my, my wife is, you know, 
making me, quote unquote, making me. I'm watching it too. Who's kidding who? But we watched two episodes last night. But now here is the thing. If you've seen The Crown, it's obviously a dramatization of the British royal family. We're into the Chuck and Die era now. So there's a lot of questions out there and talk about should The Crown have a warning on it? And I'm not talking about sex or violence or, you know, bad hairstyles or ridiculous accents. I'm not talking about a warning about that. No, I'm talking about should it have a warning that says, you know, this thing is a dramatization and not actually historically accurate. Helena Bonham Carter, who is a star on the show, uh, says that, yeah, indeed, that is exactly what should happen. Carter, who plays Princess Margaret in both seasons three and seasons four, which is just out now, says, quote, unquote, on this uh, podcast about uh, the crown, quote, says Carter, it's dramatized. I do feel very strongly because I think we have a moral responsibility to say, hang on, guys, this is not a drama, Doc. We are making a drama. They are two different entities. And this from a leading royal biographer, Mr. Hugo Vickers, who is talking about the portrayal of Prince Philip in the series. Quote, from the outset, the crown has been full of not merely inaccuracies, but clear and deliberate departures from the truth. Prince Philip's treatment by the producers is particularly disgraceful. And if you've watched any of the series, you know it's kind of a villain-style guy. He's not, he's not treated the most uh, sympathetically. You think that the crown actually needs a warning on it? I think in some ways it wouldn't make any difference, warning or no warning. Because what's going to happen is the crown, unfortunately, is going to influence the way people look at it. And they're going to look at it. There's, there's all kinds of stuff about, in last night's episode I saw where Chuck and Di tour Australia. And they have all of these things that, you know, apparently Diana says or Charles says to the media. And just none of it happened. <laughs> None of it. And is that rewriting history somehow? I think in some cases, whether or not the producers of the program mean to, to be that, that's exactly what's happened. Let's get to the beard. Let's get to the beards. To shave or not to shave. Uh, the CDC now has actually put out an infographic, the U.S. Center for Disease Control, an infographic on its website covering the topic of facial hair and N95 masks. It suggests that certain styles of handlebar mustaches, soul patches, safe to don. You can have a soul patch. You're going to look like an idiot, but you can have one. Others, like extended goatees, mutton chops, and Van Dykes, break the seals of the the mask seal, pardon me, and should be trimmed. Hey, hey, cut back that Van Dyke. That's disgusting. Your Van Dyke is out of control. Thanks, Doug. Uh, here's the, the, the big takeaway for this, though. Here's the big takeaway from either the CDC or the UBC. UBC, the doctor out there, is disagreeing, saying that, yeah, no, any kind of beard's a bad idea. But this is, this is your takeaway. The bigger the beard, the more potential for leakage. Your beard is leaking. The bigger the beard, the more potential for leakage. Just keep that in mind. All right. As promised, let's get to the big phallus. Police in southern Germany have opened an investigation into the disappearance, and I read this from the news, I don't make this up, into the disappearance of a large wooden sculpture of a phallus from a mountainside where it appeared without explanation several years ago. 
The local newspaper reporting Monday that the seven-foot-tall sculpture, man, that is a big wooden phallus, a seven-foot-tall phallus appears to have been chopped down over the weekend. Oh, the humanity! It's just a sorry pile of sawdust left behind. The male genitalia had gained celebrity status in recent years as a destination for hikers. It even appeared on Google Maps. It was classified as a cultural monument. Here's a monument to my culture. Local lore has it that it was made as a prank birthday present for a young man whose family didn't appreciate it. So the 200 kilogram, well that's 440 pounds for you, you imperial phallus lovers, 440 pound sculpture was hauled up to the mountain, left there, and now somebody has chopped it down. That's a story that's going to get a rise out of me. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show live weekdays starting at noon.